You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Good evening, everyone. I'm Tracy Diamond from the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and I want to thank you all for joining us at the Maryland State Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped for Writers Live with Liza Mundy. Liza Mundy is a New York Times bestselling author, and I just found out that Code Girls, the paperback edition, has made the New York Times list this week, so congratulations. A longtime reporter at the Washington Post and a frequent commentator on prominent national television shows, radio, and online news outlets. A senior fellow at New America, Monday is one of the nation's foremost experts on women and work issues. Tonight, she's talking about Code Girls, the untold story of the American, code, American women codebreakers of World War II. It's the story of the more than 10,000 women that served as codebreakers. The efforts of these women shortened the war, saved countless lives, and gave them access to careers previously denied to them. A strict vow of secrecy nearly erased their efforts from history, but Mundy brings their stories to life in this vital account of American courage, service, and scientific accomplishment. Mundy's research has touched so many lives, including a coworker. Jen Westervelt, the branch manager at the Light Street branch, who shared her story with me because she couldn't be here tonight. Her mother was recruited by the Navy in her junior year of college to work on the ultra secret. She adhered to the oath, so Jane didn't know much about her work. Using the index while reading Code Girls, Jan was able to look up where her mother was working and could imagine her walking from Fox Hall Road over to the Naval Security Station every night for her graveyard shift from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. Her mother said it was the most exciting time in her life, and Jan was able to see what a huge, important thing this was for her mother and what it was like for her to be with all these women when she was speaking with her friends in her book club, who were also daughters of Code Girls. So I'm so glad Liza's here in Baltimore to share more of her research and writing with all of you and to share the remarkable achievements of these women. Please give a warm welcome to Liza Mundy. Thank you so much, Tracy, for that great introduction and for... uh, for movingly including the account of your of your colleague's mother. Uh, the paperback actually has an afterword in which I was able to write about the reaction I've gotten to Code Girls and the many, many families I've heard from whose mothers and grandmothers and aunts did this work, as well as Code Girls themselves. I've heard from at least 20 women since my book was published uh, saying that they too did this work and had always kept it secret until now. So it's always just really wonderful to hear those accounts. And of course, it's great to be at Pratt library. I'm so, as a parent and an author and a reader, I have availed myself of libraries in every conceivable way, interlibrary loan, archival research, working in libraries, reading the books, bringing my kids uh, to to read books. And also, uh, many, many librarians were recruited to work in the code-breaking facilities. They were incredibly important in terms of sorting messages, filing messages, comparing messages to a 
to each other. They were uh, an extremely important part of the code-breaking operation. So uh, thank you to Pratt. It's, it's great to be here. Thank you all for coming out. Uh, and so uh, actually this, this uh, first slide I think will have a lot of meaning to people in the room. I, these are, don't worry, I know that there's nothing more exciting than a good PowerPoint presentation, uh, particularly in the evening, but I will be, these are, these are historical slides for the most part that I dug up during my research and I love each one of them and I hope that you'll find that they enhance the talk. So I like to start with this, uh, with this photo because it illustrates what I think of as the plight of the educated woman in 1942. So this photo depicts the May Court at Goucher College. And I don't have to tell anybody in this room uh, what Goucher is and what Goucher was in 1942. Obviously, it's a co-educational college now in Towson, Maryland. In 1942, it was a girls' school. The women who went there were called Goucher Girls, and it was located in downtown Baltimore. And about half the undergraduate student body were boarders, and about half of them were city girls who lived in Baltimore and often walked uh, to their classes at Goucher. And I interviewed uh, quite a few of them uh, for this book. And... These women on this platform who had been selected for the May Court were all senior women at Goucher, so they were about to graduate, and they were much more unusual than, than they even would have realized. Goucher, like many women's colleges, had been founded in the late 19th century at a time when people generally believed that higher education was not necessary for women and that it was not good for women. It was actually fairly widespread belief that that getting too much learning made a woman sort of uppity. It made her unmarriageable. Uh, it, um, you know, it, it, it made her too cerebral. It turned her into a blue stocking. Uh, and there was actually a Harvard physician who argued in the 19th century that higher education actually made women infertile because it swelled their brains at the expense of their wombs. So these colleges like Goucher were founded at a time in American history when uh, they were tilting against uh, sort of prevailing beliefs and, and existed and were founded to prove that it was worthwhile to educate women, that women deserved an education, that they would benefit from an education. Uh, and they were very, very fine institutions, you know, staffed by top-notch faculty, uh, giving women a very high-grade liberal arts education. These women would have taken Latin, physics, French, um, you know, higher mathematics, English, very, very challenging curriculum. And what these women wouldn't have realized is that only 4% of American women obtained a four-year college degree back in 1942. So they really were uh, sort of the cream of the crop in terms of academic initiative and opportunity. And the reason that these numbers were so small back then, uh, of course, is because so many campuses were closed to women in 1942. Uh, the Ivy League didn't admit women. Many, many private colleges didn't admit women. In many public universities, still didn't admit women. In my home state of Virginia, UVA held off for as long as it could. William and Mary admitted women uh, much sooner, but UVA held off until the late 1960s, uh, along with the Ivy League, when it finally deigned to uh, give women a four-year college degree. And so women were shut out a lot out of a lot of the most desirable academic real estate in 1942. And also, those young women who did have the privilege of going to university also knew that when they graduated, 
the career paths open to them were very, very limited. If you were lucky enough to go to an institution like Goucher and you graduated, really the only job you could reliably expect to, to land upon graduation was teaching school. And a lot of the women at Goucher, I interviewed them, and they did student teaching uh, during their years at Goucher in order to prepare for this. And teaching school is great if you want to be a school teacher. But if you want to be a doctor or an architect or a businesswoman or a lawyer, you were pretty much going to be shut out of those fields and shut out of those graduate schools and shut out of the networks that would that existed to um, you know to to uh, provide a community for men in those fields and so families coming out of the depression these women were all born in 1920 they grew up during the depression their families had suffered often economically families were very reluctant to pay the tuition to send a daughter to college and actually a number of these women I interviewed had gone to had gone to Goucher on scholarship they often couldn't afford to board and again that would be a reason that they would live at home uh, so there were a lot of barriers to educating women but one reason actually that a family might pay the tuition to send a daughter to Goucher or any other college was so she could get her proverbial MRS degree, so that she could meet men at neighboring men's schools and, and secure her economic prospects by marrying a guy from a good family or with good academic prospects or both. And so, of course, in the case of the Goucher girls, they were dating wildly at, at the Naval Academy, 20 miles away, and also at Johns Hopkins. Uh, and so, therefore... Um, end-of-year rituals like the May Court existed to symbolize that they were now being ushered into the marriage market. And as far as I can tell, uh, a May Court is the sort of a vestige of a pagan fertility ritual. The women are dressed up in their virginal white dresses, and uh, you know somebody is crowned queen, and the rest of the women are attending her court, and they're all, therefore, then going to be ushered off uh, to their lives as wives and mothers. And again, this was the case at all women's colleges. They often had traditions like this. At Wellesley College in Massachusetts, there was something called the senior class hoop roll. And the legend around that was that the winner of the hoop roll would be the class's first bride. So again, there was this sort of dual set of pressures on women to perform well academically, but to land a husband by graduation. And in fact, uh, at Wellesley, in the yearbook class of 42, there was a whole section on naming the women who were engaged by graduation and the men they were engaged to, and naming the women who had left before graduation in order to get married, and the names of the men that they are married, because that was considered a perfectly legitimate reason to go to school. Maybe you go to college for two years, you meet a guy who's graduating, and you go ahead and leave, you don't even finish your education. So that is the kind of world that these highly motivated young women were being prepared for. But what I love about this slide is that two of the women on this platform uh, had already been selected for a completely different future. Uh, so this woman, her name at the time was Jacqueline Jenkins, and later on after the war when she got married, her last name was Nye, Jacqueline Jenkins Nye, mother of Bill Nye, the science guy. So you get a sense of her intellectual uh, capabilities. And her good friend, Gwyneth Gaminder, they called each other the double letter friends, JJ and GG, um, they had already been selected for a completely different life course, really. Uh, and, and they had been secretly tapped by the U.S. Navy at the beginning of their senior year. And they had spent their senior year, unbeknownst to anybody, along with about a dozen of their Goucher classmates, taking secret training courses uh, 
uh, ginned up by the U.S. Navy. They were taught by a naval officer as well as the English professor, Ola Winslow, to learn how to become code breakers. They were studying the arcane art of cryptanalysis, which was something that very few people in the United States ever would have heard of. England uh, and Europe had a long tradition of what was called reading each other's mail. European countries with, you know, centuries of alliances and diplomatic intrigues, diplomatic pouches, uh, the use of coded letters and ciphers was more common in Europe. But in the United States, we didn't have much of a tradition of code breaking. And so these women were introduced to all sorts of arcane techniques for breaking secret message systems, uh, which have existed really since the beginning of when humans learned how to communicate with each other, either verbally or through written language. We've always wanted to find a way to secretly communicate with another person using some sort of system that nobody else can penetrate. So this is really an ancient human art and science uh, that these young women were being secretly ushered into. Nobody on that platform would have known that they were training to be code breakers. They couldn't tell their brothers, their boyfriends, their roommates, or their parents, or anybody that they were preparing now for a completely different future than anybody would have thought seeing them there in their frilly white dresses. And the reason, of course, that they had been tapped by the U.S. Navy to learn how to become code breakers was because earlier uh, in their academic year, on December 7, 1941, the United States was attacked at Pearl Harbor, a surprise attack by, the, by Japan that sunk a number of our battleships that killed over 2,000 young American men. It was the shocking event that propelled us into World War II, which had been raging in Europe now for several years. Uh, it It was a total surprise. It was a galvanizing event. The Japanese thought that it would drive us to our knees and that we would allow them a negotiated peace to keep the territory that they had taken in the Pacific. But instead, it caused the American people to rise up. Every young man practically volunteered the next day to fight. All of a sudden, we declare war on Japan, Germany declares war on us, and within a matter of days, we are in total global war. Men are shipping out on convoys across the Atlantic Ocean to Europe and to North Africa. Uh, Young men are on aircraft carriers now on battleships in the Pacific Ocean, and, and, and the whole country is transformed. And it's hard, I think, for us to fully appreciate that at the beginning of World War II, upon our entry into the war, it was not foreordained that we were going to win. I mean, we can look back now and say, yeah, we had the bombers, we had the ships, we had the industrial might, we had the willpower. But at the time, uh, we did not have, we did not feel feel certain that we were going to win. All of a sudden, German U-boats are now coming to patrol our shores. The Germans called it their happy time. All of our shipping up and down the Atlantic coast was unprotected uh, by naval convoys and being sunk by Germans at such a rate that the Outer Banks of North Carolina were called Torpedo Junction, and people on, on shore could stand there and watch the ships burn. So it was a terrifying time in American life. Uh, and it was also a massive intelligence failure. And and the U.S. Navy knew that they had really been caught sleeping on the job. We had our fleet anchored and moored in Pearl Harbor, our Pacific fleet. Almost the entire fleet was there. We knew that Japan was going to do something in the Pacific, and yet we somehow didn't know that on December 7th the attack was going to come from the skies and we were going to lose all those men and lose those battleships. So... Upon our entry into this global war, we suddenly are aware of how vulnerable 
how vulnerable we are in terms of our intelligence capabilities. And again, it's hard for us to appreciate. I live in the Washington, D.C. area where we have now 17 intelligence agencies. We have intelligence agencies that exist to oversee other intelligence agencies. But at the beginning of World War II, we had nothing practically. We didn't have the CIA. We didn't have the NSA. We didn't have a director of national intelligence. We have a lot of, 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 of catching up to do really overnight. And so the OSS will be founded, the predecessor to the CIA. We'll start building spy networks overseas, particularly in Europe. But that takes time. And the thing that we could do right away was significantly ramp up our ability to collect, intercept, and learn how to break enemy codes and ciphers so that we can anticipate enemy movements, we can know where the ships are, and hopefully stave off any kind of terrible ambush like Pearl Harbor. So before the war, the U.S. Army and the U.S. Navy both had very small code-breaking bureaus. Again, this wasn't something that Americans were either good at or particularly comfortable with. So, And these weren't prestigious operations, particularly in the U.S. Navy. If you're a naval officer, a career Navy, you want to be on a ship, right? You want to be a commander. You don't want to be sitting at a desk in Washington uh, studying some sort of arcane Japanese code system. So there were small bureaus. They were recruiting... Uh, sporadically before the war, looking for bright young minds who could master this arcane uh, field. And of course, normally the Navy and Army would have gone to the men's schools. They would have gone to schools like MIT and Yale. They had faculty members that would sort of keep a lookout for the right kinds of minds. And all of a sudden, those men are unavailable at exactly the time when we need to be significantly ramping up these efforts. So when I was doing my research at the National Archives in College Park, I found a memo in which a light bulb moment literally went on over some naval bureaucrat's head If the educated men are unavailable to us now in this hour of need, let's see what these educated young women can do. Let's see what these talented women who've had so many fields closed off to them up to now can contribute to their country. And so as you can see, the monthly memo that the Navy was generating to say where it was getting its code breakers, suddenly someone types new source women's colleges. And as a result of that light bulb moment, the young women at Goucher were tapped, as well as women at all the Seven Sisters Colleges, Smith, Radcliffe, Mount Holyoke, Bryn Mawr. Young women would be secretly tapped, identified by their math and astronomy professors. They were looking for women who were good at math, who were good at language, who had what we would today call grit, resilience, and persistence, who showed loyalty to the United States, who came from good families or somehow seemed patriotic and reliable. Those women would be called in to secret meetings with professors one by one, and they would be asked two questions. Do you like crossword puzzles, and are you engaged to be married? (laughs) And if they answered yes to the first and no to the second, they would be invited to spend their senior year taking this top-secret cryptanalysis course, taught in in observatories and locked classrooms and and places where the work could be kept secret. They were sworn to secrecy, of course, because you can't have the enemy know that you're working or that you have broken their code system, because if the enemy knows that, the enemy will change their code system and all your hard work will go for naught. So the young women were trained by the Navy, uh, and they came to Washington, those who passed the correspondence course, which was quite difficult. They came to Washington in June of 1942 at exactly the moment in the trajectory of the war when we, when, when we 
fully understood how important code breaking was going to be. Uh, if you've heard of any World War II battles, you've probably heard of the Battle of Midway. And that was uh, one of the most famous sea battles of all time. It was a, a conflict that turned on our ability now to read the Japanese naval fleet code. We had not been able to read it immediately prior to Pearl Harbor because the Japanese had changed their code books. These were big dictionary-like books that, that kept their sort of current code groups in them. They had ch they periodically changed them. And they had changed them right before Pearl Harbor. We were back in now. The Japanese were sending messages uh, saying that they were going to that they were that there was going to be a big fleet on the move. And their intention was to finish off what they had failed to complete at Pearl Harbor. Our aircraft carriers had been out of the harbor. So so some of our most important ships survived. We enabled we had been able to uh, restore some of our battleships. But the Japanese wanted to finish us off. They were going to ambush us on the island of Midway. So we started reading messages suggesting that something big was going to happen in the Pacific. All the naval officers in the Pacific who were reading these messages on the site had been trained in the 1930s by a woman named Agnes Driscoll. She was a civilian working for the U.S. Navy. She was a former uh, school teacher from Texas. She was a genius in math and language. It was Agnes Driscoll who had diagnosed how the Japanese Naval Fleet Code worked. She had trained all these officers who now uh, perform this ingenious feat in the Pacific the, the problem for the Americans was that the Japanese were using a designator called AF. It was a geographic designator to say where they were headed. The guys out of the Pacific thought it was going to be Midway, but the, guy, the brass back in Washington thought that it was someplace else. And so in order to figure this out, what they did was they sent an American message in the clear, meaning it was just regular English, and it said, oh, they're getting short on water at Midway. The Japanese, as we anticipated, picked up that message and transmitted it in the Japanese Naval Fleet Code, which we were intercepting and reading. And they said, oh, they're low on water at AF. And so that was, the, that was the ingenious way that the Americans figured out that the Japanese were, in fact, headed for Midway. We sent a massive fleet to be waiting for them to ambush the ambushers. It was the opposite of Pearl Harbor. We were ready. Our fighter planes went up, and we won the multi-day Battle of Midway in what was not the, yet the turning point of the Pacific War, but it was a massive victory. And all of a sudden, code-breaking is on the map in the U.S. Navy as something that is going to be vital to the war effort and increasingly prestigious at exactly the moment when these young women and their civilian clothes are pouring into a very hot, very sweaty Washington, D.C., uh, the naval officers will become so crowded that they're sitting on upturned wastebaskets as they immediately begin to plot to apply themselves to this incredibly important effort. And just to understand how the division of labor upon our entry into World War II, if you've seen the imitation game, you've heard of the German Enigma cipher. So there are so many different code and cipher systems that are being used during the war. If you think about how many messages we send each individually every day through the airwaves by uh, text messages that we send, emails, Instagrams, Facebook updates, uh, Twitter, all of this stuff is traveling through the airwaves. Each and every one of us is sending these. Similarly, during World War II, 
diplomats, politicians, uh, military leaders, Admiral Donitz, who's commanding the German U-boat fleet, is micromanaging every single U-boat. And they're using this, enig- the Germans are using this machine called the Enigma that's like a typewriter. It looks like a typewriter. It's battery powered. It's very mobile. It's very handy. It has rotors that will transform the letters of a German message into unintelligible gibberish. And that's just one system. So the British bef- before the war, Alan Turing, as you know if you've seen the imitation game, had broken the Enigma system. And so the British, upon our entry into the war, have lead code-breaking responsibility for the European theater and the Atlantic Ocean because they've been working the Enigma system for several years now. And we are very invested in this effort because we are now sending young men on convoys across the Atlantic Ocean to Europe. We're being sunk. If we, you know, if we can't read those messages and the wolf packs are waiting, then the American ships get sunk and it's a terrible tragedy and, 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 and morale plummets in the country. Uh, so we are very interested in helping the British with that effort, but they don't trust us at first, actually. They don't believe that we can keep a secret. So it takes them a while to even tell us that they've broken the Enigma cipher. And then it takes them a while to really start working with us as a trusted partner. So that's the division of labor in the Atlantic. But meanwhile, in the Pacific Ocean, we have sole code-breaking responsibility in an even larger body of water where we have already been uncomfortably surprised at least once. And so that's an enormous effort. And the women pouring into the Navy officers will immediately begin working the Japanese naval fleet code uh, to ensure that there's not another ambush and to hope that there's another uh, breakthrough, like in the Battle of Midway. And that's their... That's their assignment and their task. But meanwhile, the U.S. Army has responsibility for the completely different set of cipher systems being used by the Japanese Army, which has now spread out all over the Pacific Ocean. The Japanese by now have taken Guam, they've taken Wake Island, they've taken the Philippines, they've taken all of these land masses and island around the Pacific, they had to communicate with headquarters, they have to communicate with supply ships that are supplying them every day with everything that they need. So the U.S. Army, all of a sudden, also needs trained minds to break these systems at exactly the moment when they can't tap the men. And so they need to find women as well. And it's this unprecedented moment in American history where educated women are being competed for. They're being competed for by the military services. They're being competed for by defense, by private industry. They need women who can run computers. They need female engineers. They need math majors. They need them in a way that they've never needed women before. And the Army and the Navy are hotly and bitterly competing Uh, to get to women's colleges first. I actually found memos in the National Archives where the Navy was complaining that the Army was cutting in to get our girls. The Army got... Uh, made it first to places like Wheaton College and Connecticut College to tap those girls before the Navy could get to them. So that's how hot the competition was for these women. But the Army would ultimately need 7,000 women to work their uh, their cipher systems. The Navy would need 4,000. That's a lot of women. So the Army thinks, okay, where else can we look for educated women? And they decide to go to teachers' colleges, which are humbler institutions. Women have enrolled in those specifically to become school teachers, to support themselves as school teachers. So one of the women in my book who I interviewed, she's still alive, Dorothy Ramali, was training to be a math teacher at Indiana State Teachers College in Pennsylvania, her native state. And uh, she was called in by the dean of women there and invited to take the, the Army's secret 
uh, cryptanalytic training course. But even that wasn't going to be enough for the U.S. Army, so it decides to recruit actual school teachers, young women who are overworked and underpaid almost by definition. So this is the central character in my book, Dot Braden. She's still alive. She's 98. She's going strong. We've done several book events together. Uh, she is so lively that she will often attend the after party, after the book party, at times when I am too tired uh, practically to lift my pen um, to sign any more books. And uh, so you can imagine how plucky she was in 1942 and 1943. So the Army strategy to lure these school teachers to Washington, D.C., where it now needs 7,000 women to do its work, was to send its handsomest young army officers to lurk in post offices and hotels, uh, at first throughout the American South and then ultimately all around the country, thinking that they're going to lure the women to Washington by dangling the prospect of marrying a young man who looks like the recruiting officer. And if you think I'm making this up, I actually found an oral history where the commanding officer was congratulating himself on this strategy of sending their their best-looking young men out to do the recruiting. And what I love about Dot's story is it shows how wrong-headed this obsession with marriage that the military seemed to have with regard to women was uh, because Dot's motivation to come to Washington, or one of her motivations, was actually to get out of a marriage that she was being pressured into, as many young women were at the start of the war, because the men were shipping out. They wanted a sweetheart at home. Uh, And so her college boyfriend had sent her a ring from his training camp in California, and he wanted her to follow him to California, and and that they could get married there, and then she could just wait for him. Uh, And and she didn't want any part of that. Uh, Dot was the oldest daughter in a family of four. Her mother was a single mother. Mother supporting the whole family, uh, working as a secretary at a uniform factory in Lynchburg, which is a small industrial city in the south side of Virginia. Um, Dot was, uh, she had gone to Randolph-Macon Woman's College. Uh, again, she couldn't afford to board. She lived at home. She worked her way uh, through school by working at a florist and grading physics papers. She was now teaching school in Chatham, Virginia, at Chatham High School, a public high school there. She was very overburdened by work because all of the male teachers had left and she had inherited all of their classes. Uh, but she still didn't want to leave and go to California to marry this guy. She liked him, but she didn't want to spend her life with them. And so the prospect of taking unidentified work with the U.S. War Department was a great out for her. It was a legitimate reason not to get married, you know, to serve the war effort like her brothers. The recruiting that was being done of these women in public places, they couldn't even be told what the work was that they were going to do because it was the recruiting was being done in public. So Dot was powerfully motivated, actually, by the desire to get out of an engagement uh, that she otherwise sort of didn't know how to wiggle her way out of because women were told to support the morale of the troops and you didn't want some guy, you know, having a nervous breakdown or something on account of you're not wearing his ring. So uh, so she was wearing his ring even though she didn't particularly want to. So now she, she walks to the door of the Virginia Hotel in Lynchburg. There's an Army recruiting officer there. Her mother has told her uh, there's, there's a recruiting officer there. She's looking to get out of a marriage. Um, she's underworked, under overworked and underpaid. She knows that whatever the, um, whatever the War Department is offering 
her due, they're going to pay $1,600 a year compared to the $900 a year that she's making as a school teacher in Chatham. And also her two younger brothers are now enlisted in the U.S. Army. They're training for the fighting. She wants to do anything she can to bring them home. She wants to, she wants to show that she too can contribute to the war effort. The Braden family, like all American families, was so patriotic that they even tried to, to uh, volunteer their family dog, Poochie, uh, to become a war dog. And Dot still has the single-spaced letter that she got from the Army War Dog Training Center saying, thank you very much for your generous um, you know, offer, but Poochie was too old to become a war dog. They had an age cap on their war dogs. So Poochie stayed home, but Dot got on a train and came to Washington. And the other incentive was, even though she had grown up in Lynchburg three hours from Washington, D.C., she had never been to the nation's capital. She grew up during the Depression. People didn't take vacations back then. Her family didn't have a car. She had never seen the big city. And all of a sudden, she's coming to Washington, D.C., which now that so much of Europe has fallen now that Paris is under occupation, now that London is, you know, under constant threat uh, by bombing and possibly even being invaded by Hitler. Washington is really the beating heart of the free world at this point. So she is coming to what is arguably now the most important city uh, in the free world. She takes a train. She alights in Union Station, where the trains are now being announced by female voices for the first time, again, because all of the men now who are of fighting age are all fighting, and all of their jobs are being taken by women. She takes a cab to a place called Arlington Hall, which before the war had been something called a junior college. Uh, Again, back in the day when it was thought that too much education was bad for women, junior colleges were kind of a thing. They were Tony boarding schools where uh, a girl could be sent to get some education, but not too much education. So she could get a couple years of high school. She could get some college classes. She could get some deportment lessons, some horseback riding, you know, some piano, some voice, some French. Uh, and so, but it's wartime now. And the Army and the Navy both need massive secret code-breaking compounds to house all these women. So they kick the girls out of Arlington Hall. They move, move in the code-breaking operations. They build these ugly, very hot temporary buildings where all of these school teachers very quickly are going to be trained in the geography of Asia. You can see these civilian women sitting there. They're going to start intercepting messages that are coming in from the Pacific. They're going to be working in these massive temporary buildings, incredibly hot uh, in the summer in Washington. And this is where Dot is going to find herself uh, in the uh, in the fall of 1943, and she still has trouble appreciating that she will now be part of the third of one of the three most important code breaking operations of World War II. So, number one is the breaking of the Enigma cipher, which will enable us ultimately to clear the Atlantic Ocean of the U-boats. Uh, number two is the Battle of Midway and the breaking of the Japanese fleet code. But number three, which you don't hear about so often. Is the, is the daily breaking and exploitation of the messages that are being sent by the ships that are supplying the Japanese army. These are marus. They are former commercial ships that have now been commandeered by the Japanese army, and they are bringing everything that the army needs. They're bringing food. They're bringing fuel. They're bringing spare airplane parts. They're bringing reinforcement troops. Everything that the army soldier needs is being brought by ship, and the school teachers are the ones 
who are learning how to work this very complicated cipher system. It's called a super enciphered system in which a word like Maru will be converted to a four-digit code group like 6281. Uh, there will be another set of digits added to those numbers. It's an early form of encryption. They called it enciphering, but it was encryption. And Dot and the school teachers were basically hackers, hacking this enemy system, stripping out the extraneous digits that had been added to get down to the code group and then she remembers running to a place called the overlapper station where the overlapper would stack up a lot of these messages and look for patterns to figure out what is the current code group that stands for maru or aviation gasoline or food or reinforcement troops or whatever the ship is carrying as well as the the destination that the ship is headed for often the ships would broadcast what was called a noon position message stating where they were going to be at noon the next day so the school teachers would run to get the message passed along so that it could be passed to an American submarine commander who would be waiting when the Japanese supply ship appeared at noon the next day. As a result of their efforts and the speed with which they work, most Japanese deaths were the result of starvation and disease because the Japanese army wasn't getting supplies that it needed. And in the National Archives, there are lists of thousands and thousands of Maros that were sunk as a result of school teachers like Dot Braden. Uh, and so this will give you a sense, again, of how many women were doing this work, uh, the, just the, the, all the different offices. Um, there was a, there was a, a set of, of numbers at the beginning of every army, Japanese army message that told where the message was coming from, who it was going to. Uh, that was in a different cipher system. It was broken by a couple of young women. Uh, and as a result of knowing just who was sending the message, where they were based, and who it was going to, we were able to put together a very accurate idea of where the Japanese army was located and where they were on the move to. It was something called order of battle, and the code-breaking operations would put together an order of battle intelligence report for the Pentagon every morning in a meeting that started at 5 a.m. Uh, there was another code system that was being used by Japanese diplomats who were stationed in Europe. Uh, if you think about it, Japan had diplomats in all the Axis countries, all the occupied countries, all of those diplomats were communicating back to Tokyo using very, very elaborate descriptions of what was going on in Europe, what Hitler was saying, what Mussolini was saying. They were using a different cipher system. We were breaking it. Uh, as a result of reading every single one of those diplomatic messages, when the diplomats were invited to tour Hitler's Atlantic Wall on the coast of France, his fortifications on the coast of France, the diplomats reported back, where it was well fortified and where it wasn't as well fortified. So when we were planning the D-Day landings, we knew that Normandy would be the best place to invade. So again, that's the kind of intelligence that we were getting from these operations. There was an African-American code-breaking unit at the Army's code-breaking operation. The U.S. Army was segregated in World War II. So was the code-breaking operation. This was a unit, a very important unit, again, of former school teachers who had achieved their college education, uh, you know, despite enormous barriers in a segregated school system, and they were working the codes and ciphers of the private sector. So just as banks and companies like Amazon, we hope, encrypt all of our financial transactions, this was happening during the war when banks and companies sent cables and, and you know, radio messages about their transaction, and this unit was, tr was trying to figure out if any companies were um, secretly doing business with Hitler or with Japanese companies like Mitsubishi, and that was very important work as well. Uh, so the Navy women who you saw 
saw at the outset in their frilly dresses were actually invited to join the U.S. Navy, were pretty much required to join the U.S. Navy as waves. So this was a tipping point for, the, for women in the military. The waves were created over the protest of many old admirals and other people who didn't want women in the Navy um, Many people in America thought that it was a terrible thing to have women entering the military. But again, we needed the woman power at this point. There were a lot of battles uh, to get women. The, the deans and presidents of many women's colleges fought very hard to get women into the Navy. They understood that this was going to open up leadership opportunities for women and potentially professional fields for women as well. There were pitched battles over the women's uniforms. The Navy didn't want to let them have Navy blue, even if they were being admitted to the Navy. They didn't want them to fully look like the men. Uh, but the, again, the women who were advocating for this understood that it was very important for the women to look like they were fully part of the U.S. Navy. And so there were some very gorgeous designer uniforms that were ultimately designed. And you can see women crossing Nebraska Avenue in Washington, D.C. The Navy also needed a large compound. And so it kicked women out of a school card, Mount Vernon Seminary. Those women had to take classes at Garfinkel's department store while they were um, looking for a new place to study. There were barracks that were built and you could see the women crossing the street to work at the Naval Code-Breaking Compound, which is where the Department of Homeland Security is headquartered today. So if you're driving along Nebraska Avenue from American University, maybe over to Connecticut Avenue, and you look on your right, you can see the chapel where all these women um, Excuse me. When they came to Washington, they were sat down in the chapel and they were told, uh, you're in the Navy now and, uh, and this is top secret work you're doing and don't think that just because you're women, you won't be shot. If you, if you talk about the work that you're doing, because it's top secret work, uh, to divulge it during wartime would be an act of treason, and the penalty for treason is death. And all these women vividly remember that conversation. They took it very seriously. They were told that if anybody asked what they did in these compounds in Washington that were visible, you know, you could see the women going in and out. They were to say that they were secretaries, that the work they did was trivial and unimportant, that they sharpened pencils, they emptied wastebaskets. And because they were women, people believed them. The conversation didn't last very long when somebody asked them what they did. And in that sense, they were the ideal intelligence officers because people really didn't care that much what women were doing in these giant facilities. But again, you can see the camaraderie and the number of women. Actually, the messages, the Japanese naval fleet messages are being sent along by conveyor belt there. Uh, and you can just see how many women are working this effort. Uh, you can see those are actually Japanese naval messages stacked there on the table. Hundreds and thousands of messages every day. The women knew that their brothers and boyfriends were out there in the Pacific Ocean. They knew we were pushing back, making incredibly dangerous, bloody, amphibious landings on islands around the Pacific, you know, fighting pitched sea battles. They knew when the kamikaze attacks began toward the end of the war. They knew that their work was vital. And it was enormously stressful, as what, repetitive and difficult, but also very stressful work. Uh, and as one of the women said, we knew what was happening in the Pacific because the stack would get even larger. So that's the kind of um, stress and pressure that they were under doing this work. This is just a worksheet that I found in the National Archives. The Japanese Naval Fleet Code was also a super enciphered system. It was a five-digit code system. So the women had to subtract out with what was called an additive, the five digits that had been added to the code group in order to get down to the actual code group and then figure out what it said. Again, something maybe like a noon position of where a Japanese naval ship was going to be the next day. Um, just a quick anecdote to give you a sense of the women's lives in Washington. Uh, there was... 
So the Japanese Navy communicated in this great naval fleet code, but sometimes it wanted sort of a smaller ad hoc system. The same way that if we're sending a message to somebody, sometimes we might send an email, sometimes we might send a quick text, right? So, so the, the inner island cipher was the equivalent of the quick text. Uh, that the Japanese Navy could use to communicate between ships and islands. It was, again, a completely different cipher system. There was a group of Wellesley women who were assigned to work the inter-island cipher. It was important. It wasn't super prestigious, but all the systems were important. Important information could come in any system. This was a, um, a, a, actually an alphabetic system. It was a table. It was scrambled letters. Uh, it changed every month. And the Wellesley women had to work very hard once a month to break back into the key system to figure out what the new key was that determined the scrambling of the letters. And then they could sort of go on autopilot for the rest of the month. Um, and the work was more sort of routine. And so just to give you a sense of the women's lives, once they came to Washington, these young women were living unchaperoned really for the first time in their lives. If they were naval officers, if they were college graduates as opposed to enlisted women, they could live in group houses. They didn't have to live in the barracks. And they could have big parties because Washington is under enormous stress. So there's a lot of alcohol in Washington. There's a lot of drinking in Washington. The young women were not immune to uh, to sort of the attraction of blowing off steam after your, your stressful eight-hour watch. And so uh, the commanding officer of the Wellesley women remembered their intelligence very admiringly, but he also remembered their partying spirits very admiringly. And he remembered that one of them, a math major, would come to him and say, well, when can I have my next big blowout? And he would look at the wall calendar and say, well, the key is going to change on such and such a day, so you can have your party two weeks before that so you can recover from your hangovers uh, you know, in time to apply your minds to break back into the key system. But again, just to show you the, 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 the dual pressures of their lives in April of night and how seriously they took their work. In April 1943, a set of messages were received in the Pacific, both in the Naval Fleet Code and in the Inner Island Cipher, announcing that Admiral Yamamoto, who was the commander of the Japanese Navy, he was the mastermind of Pearl Harbor, uh, would be making an inspection tour of the Solomon Islands that was upcoming in a few days. In a few days, so men out of the Pacific who were working the Naval Fleet Code on site. Uh, and the women who were working the Inner Island Cipher got very busy. They put together his exact itinerary, when he was going to be in the air, when he was going to land, when he was going to be on a minesweeper, when he was going to be back on the base, back up in the air, so that we knew his moments down to the second. We were able to, uh, to shoot his plane out of the air. The decision was made to assassinate an enemy commander. It was a top-secret operation. Again, the American public couldn't know that it had come about as a result of code-breaking. We certainly didn't want the Japanese knowing that this was that we just somehow found his plane in the air and shot him down. Uh, so it was top secret. Nobody could know how he had been shot down. But the code breakers all remembered that cheering went up in the code breaking compound when they when they learned that the admiral had been shot out of the air uh, and killed. And and that's an example of how seriously they took their work and the enormity of the responsibility uh, and, and the fact that it was wartime, the fact that their brothers were out there, that they were reading messages that foretold the fate of their brothers' ships meant that there was no second guessing 
when their work led to the sinking of a ship or the sinking of an entire convoy or the downing of an enemy aircraft because they knew it was wartime. They knew that we wanted to bring the boys home. But after the war, the women would understand uh, sort of what the stakes were. They would understand that lives were lost as a result of their efforts and that lives were saved as well. And that was the, the seriousness of the work that they really had to live with for the rest of their lives. Uh, just quickly, I'll say that as the war went on, we worked very closely with the British uh, on the, the Enigma cipher being used by the U-boats. And really, ultimately, we took over that code-breaking effort. Uh, the Germans were suspicious that we had broken the Enigma system. So Admiral, Don Admiral Donitz, who was very crafty, uh, uh, changed the design of the Enigma machines. They added a rotor that made the scrambling even more difficult. And the American uh, industrial might had to get involved. We built these massive machines that could break that more difficult cipher. They were secret. They were built in Dayton, Ohio, and then secretly brought to Washington, D.C. And they were being run by women who were basically designing early computer menus uh, to determine how that key that determined the setting of the Enigma machine, it changed every day or every two days. And that was the real challenge, was breaking the key, the key change. And it was women who were designing the computer menus that did that work. It was women who were running the machines. It was women who were compiling the intelligence that we were getting from those machines. And it was women who were working the midnight watch on June 6, 1944, when at about 1.30 in the morning, the German Enigma started, machine started chattering all along the coast of, of Europe because the Germans looked out and realized that there were thousands of Allied ships on the horizon that the D-Day landing was happening. And so these women had the unique experience of participating, in a way, in the D-Day landing by reading the messages as the Germans were reacting to this you know, monumental and successful invasion. Uh, again, these are just a few photos of the women uh, in Washington in their free time. Um, there were women were writing letters to men again to keep up morale. My central character, Dot Braden, managed to disentangle herself from her uh, from her college boyfriend. She was writing half dozen men at at any given point. She was a little. Um, a little more worried about having that appear in the book than the fact of her code breaking. Um, but I assured her that it was really quite normal. Uh, this was her best friend, a school teacher from Bourbon, Mississippi, uh, named Ruth Weston, uh, who came up and the two women lived together. You can see they're very cityfied now. Uh, and ultimately, Dot would marry one of the men that she uh, was writing, Jim Bruce. Uh, they would have a very happy marriage. And you can see Dot in the striped shirt. You can see Ruth, who became a mathematician with the NSA, the National Security Agency is the inheritor agency uh, of the wartime code breaking. And when Ruth became engaged to her husband, Bill Cable, uh, she made Dodd and Jim come up and vet him before she would agree to marry him. That's how close the women remained. And again, this was a group of Navy enlisted women. After the war, the women were told, thanks very much for your service. Here's a medal. Don't show it to anybody. Don't tell anybody what you did ever. Uh, and so the women were, most, for the most part, sent home, although an important cohort would continue working for the NSA. Most of the women were sent home to have go forth, you know, raise families, uh, and never tell anybody what you did. But this was a group of naval enlisted women who wrote each other a chain letter uh, for the rest of their lives because their friendship was that powerful and that strong. Uh, the only one of them who's still alive is Ruth Mursky in the striped shirt. I interviewed her from my book. And her email sign-on at age 95 is Ruth the Wave. So again, that's, that's how important her naval identity was remained to her, even as she could never tell anybody what she did and never show anybody the medal that she received for her um, work. And similarly, 
Dot Braden after the war. Both of her brothers survived the war, and uh, and they both had jobs that involved top secret security clearances after the war. She could never tell them that she had a top secret security clearance as well. And so that's what the women had to put up with. After the war, it was recognized that code breaking, along with our industrial might, was one of the central reasons that we won the war. It certainly shortened the war by at least a year. It saved thousands of lives. Uh, but when the code breakers were saluted on the floor of Congress, uh, only the men were acknowledged, uh, despite the fact that over half of our code-breaking force was female, 11,000 women who did this work. Uh, the, the representative from New York who saluted them said, uh, our code-breakers did as much to win the war as any other group of men. Uh, so their, their contribution was pretty much erased from history from the start. It, uh, because they were so good about keeping the secret, uh, it continued to be neglected even when when histories of code breaking started to be published, the, uh, the story was declassified in the 1980s, but nobody tracked the women down and told them. And so most of them took the secret to their grave. Uh, and I truly think of them as the hidden figures of the greatest generation. And it was an incredible experience to get to interview them and, and hear them talk about their work. I have a number of, um, of video clips, but I don't want to go too long. I want to leave time for questions. On my website, LizaMundy.com, you can see all of the videos of the women. You can hear their voices, hear them describe their work. But I just want to finish with the memory of Dorothy Ramali. She's the woman who wanted to be a math teacher at Indiana State Teachers College. And she'll just give you a sense of how powerfully motivated the women were to do this work and why. So we'll just hear um, her recollection. And Dorothy Ramali would become a math teacher after the war, and she would teach math at the public middle school in Arlington, Virginia, that my own children would later attend. And I just love the thought of all these middle schoolers taking Miss Ramali's Algebra 1 and Algebra 2 class and having no idea that this sweet, kind woman, who many remember as the best math teacher they had ever had, was a badass code breaker during World War II. Uh, she was so gifted and so relentless that the U.S. Navy ultimately stole her from the U.S. Army by offering her an officer's housing allowance. She would make an extra $50 a month. She was able to buy a car uh, with that extra money, and so she went from working the Japanese Army uh, code to working the Japanese Naval Fleet Code. But that's how good she was. And of course, uh, she's an example of the fact that these women walked among us. They continue to walk among us in, 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 in a, a heartening number of cases. And again, never expected credit for their work and never received credit for their work. Uh, but finally, I think, you know, we're at, we're at a time, thanks to movies like Hidden Figures, um, 
books like Rise of the Rocket Girls, uh, the fact that Grace Hopper's name is now chiseled on a residential college at Yale University. We're coming to understand that women have uh, contributed enormously to American history, not just Rosie the Riveter, who was building the bombers and the fighter ships, uh, but women who were basically founding the STEM field. This was early computer work, and, uh, and it was women who were there at the beginning, uh, and it is certainly women who should be there now in even greater numbers than they are. And I hope that by recovering these histories, uh, we can make a strong case for the fact that, that women were really helping to found these fields. So um, thank you so much for listening, and I'll be glad to take any questions that you have. Oh, okay. Oh. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, first of all, we read the book as a book club. Thank you. And Authors love book clubs. We just loved it and were mesmerized by your book. Thank you. But I have some other questions. Okay. Are you related to General Mundy, Mundy, former commandant of the U.S.? Not that, I, not that I know of. You know, anything's okay. possible. Okay, so I, I was wondering if you were related at all to the general or to the colonel. Not that I know of. Okay, well, it was a wonderful book. Thank you. And thank you so much for It was my pleasure. Right here? And they say women what? can't keep secrets. Exactly. Um, <laughs> they did say that at the time. Know, they did, I yes. Um, I'm just curious. So when did... What year did they start allowing women to be enlisted in the waves? Or did uh, it started in 1942, yeah. yeah. But, but you said they dismissed them all after the war. Well, the, most of the code breakers were sent home, yes. Although women would continue to be, I think, admitted to the naval reserves. Uh, so actually some of the women stayed in the naval reserves. Actually some of them were called up in Korea. Uh, but um, but they, were, they were not part of the active Navy after the war. It's my understanding. I, I could be wrong, uh-huh. but for the most part, uh, the the thousands of women who were working uh, the, in the code breaking operation were basically uh, told to go home. Would what? Told to go home. Oh. Um, I have three questions. One: uh, What about security breaches during the course of the program? Number two: Why did they insist on keeping it secret for such a long period of time? And number three. Were all the groups paid the same amount, different black groups? Were they paid the same? You know, okay, so let me just try to take it so I can remember. Uh, So there were... there were some security breaches during the war, uh, but none of the women that we know of committed any security breaches. Uh, there were some uh, some spies that were identified in the code-breaking operations, one in particular in the armies, um, but uh, and, and ejected from the operation. But again, no women that I know of. Uh, after the war, the reason they wanted to keep it secret, there was a brief moment after the war where it was acknowledged on the floor of Congress how important code-breaking had been. Because we thought we were going to roll it up. Again, we weren't comfortable with this sort of eavesdropping that we were doing. And, uh, and so they thought, well, we're just going to roll it up and send everybody home. But very quickly, the war would give way to the Cold War. And we would be working the... We had actually started working the Russian systems during the war. It was mostly women who were working the Russian systems. And it was women who would continue working the Russian systems after the war for what would be the NSA. It was women who were in charge of the Cuban uh, message systems during the Cuban Missile Crisis, women who were working East German systems. Uh, and so very quickly, we, we, we tamped back down the, the fact that we could break enemy systems and that we were going to continue to do so. That's when we realized that we were in this game 
really for, for, for good. Uh, and as far as your question about were the, was the African-American code-breaking unit paid the same, I can't answer, the, answer that question, unfortunately. The records on the African-American unit are very scanty. Now, I think that we could, there are a couple of names um, that are in one NSA publication, and I could probably try to obtain the personnel records of those women and answer that question, and it would be interesting to do so. I can't tell you for sure. Yeah. The, not the Army civilian women. So the Army code-breaking operation uh, remained mostly civilian. That's just the way the Army preferred to do it, uh, although they were employees of the Signal Corps. Um, and there were some WACs who worked for it, and they would have qualified. Women's Army Corps was the Army equivalent of the WAVES. And there were some WACs in the code-breaking compound, and they would have uh, qualified for some benefits. The Navy women did qualify for the GI Bill, so they could you know, get help with their mortgage. They could, in theory, continue their education or get an education after the war. Some of them went to community college. Some of them finished their college degrees if they had been enlisted women. Some of them went on to graduate school and got PhDs in, in languages. Uh, some of the Goucher women did that. But some of them were shut out of the fields that they wanted to go into. There was one woman in particular who wanted to become an architect. She had graduated from Vassar. She had been tapped by Grace Hopper. Uh, she um, wanted to go into architecture. She applied to all leading architecture schools. They all said, we're holding the spots for returning men from the war. And she said, well, I was also in the U.S. Navy. They said it doesn't matter. And she couldn't tell them that she had sunk an entire convoy. Uh, and, so, um, and so their experience of actually availing themselves of their benefits was mixed. I know, I know you mentioned the National Archives as one of your resources. Did you use any other Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. And that's why I'm so grateful to libraries. I mean, I, I, the National Archives at College Park, the Library of Congress Veterans History Project has a number of oral histories that were taken, including the woman I just mentioned who was shut out of architecture school. She left an oral history that's in the Library of Congress. So I had about 20 there. Um, you know, Ar Arlington County Public Library uh, has a lot of great records on Arlington Hall. Uh, the University of North Carolina at Greensboro has a Women's Veterans History Project. They had some great oral histories as well as um, memorabilia and supporting documents, photos. So I, uh, I, um, and I also had to get a lot of information that the NSA had declassified. Uh, that the NSA, I had to get declassified a lot of information that the NSA had. They had actually taken 20 oral histories of women along the way. Many of the women who went on to work for the NSA at some point gave oral histories, but those were all classified. So I had to um, file Freedom of Information Act requests and wait about a year to get, to get them uh, declassified. Um, I don't know if you were... Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, let's, just, let's go where the, where the microphone is. When and why Well, I, um, I actually, a, a very perceptive editor had said to me about four or five years ago, you know, I feel like we're at a good time when uh, there's a new openness to the idea of women's participation in history, women's stories, the way that women have participated in history. And this was very far-seeing of her because Hidden Figures hadn't been published yet. I mean, we were working simultaneously on a number of books. Different authors were. And so I was sort of looking for a narrative like that. Um, I came upon a... Um, 
a declassified NSA history of the Russian code-breaking project, the women who were recruited to work this very small, secret Russian project during the war. They were school teachers from Virginia, where I'm from, and that was intriguing. So I went out and talked to the historians working in the NSA's historian's office. All of our federal agencies have great historian's offices, uh, and I'm so indebted to, in this case, they were women, and they sat with me for about two hours at a time when I didn't know anything about code breaking. I had a very steep learning curve and they laid out this much larger story of of women being recruited mostly to work Japanese and German code systems during the war. And I was just open mouthed really as they were telling me the story. I couldn't believe that it hadn't already been published, but it was not clear to any of us at that point whether it would be possible to find the women, whether the women would remember accurately uh, their work and whether there would be enough supporting documents to you know substantiate their recollections, as you have to do. So that was the question that I had to answer. Oh, let's let's take here, and then and then I know you have a question. And we'll do two more questions. Okay. Yeah. They've been they've been yeah. enough, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There've been a number of dramatizations and, and fiction uh, fictional stories about the women who worked at Bletchley. Right. 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 Have you had any inquiries about? Yeah. Doing such with. Yeah. Yeah. I've had a lot of inquiries and, uh, and it has been optioned and a screenwriter is working on it. So fingers crossed. Yeah. I'm told that it, you know, it really doesn't happen until it happens. So let's all hope. Yeah. It could employ a lot of great actresses. Yeah. Did you still have a, Yeah, I, were, I had three years, basically, from start to finish. I really could have used another year. Uh, life would have been a little less stressful. But, um, but it, you know, at a certain point, time's up, pencils down. And, uh, and, and I was able to complete the research, again, because of the help I got from so many historians, NSA historians, military historians, uh, family members who had kept their mother's records. So many men helped me tell this story. So many men were engaged in the, uh, you know, military historians who really walked me through this, who fact-checked my book for me, who explained cryptanalysis to me. I had so many male allies, really, uh, in writing this book. And I'm, so I'm very grateful to all of the researchers and historians who really selflessly uh, helped, helped me uh, do it in that period of time. One last question before the book signing. You mentioned that the college graduate women were officers? Yes, yes. And only the college graduate women were officers. Right, and and I, and I I was I was trying to sort of keep my talk a little bit short. There there was a moment when the waves were created that enlisted women uh, could be routed into the code breaking operation. They didn't have the benefit of a college education, but if they tested high for aptitude, they would be routed into the code breaking operation. So when you saw those women sitting around the conveyor belts, most of those were enlisted women, and ultimately there would be women officers commanding them. So those women in frilly dresses came to D.C., they became part of the waves, then they were sent back to Smith College, and they were trained as naval officers. They would be taught to shoot, they would be taught to command, mostly other women. Uh, so yes, they became officers, but they were, the compound was mostly enlisted women, actually. So thanks for, thanks for asking that. So thank you yep. so much, Liza, for sharing your incredible research. One more round of applause, please. Oh, thank you.
This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.